Well, it's really good to be with you guys, and uh, I just want to, before we start, just thank you. Uh, as a church, you guys have been so kind to us. Uh, Cleo has been able to, you've just allowed us to use your facilities and in different ways, and uh, and we just say thank you. It just I love the kingdom mindset of this church and how it's bigger than just one gathering, and we serve the same Jesus, and we want to see his name spread throughout this county and this city and this country and this world, and you guys are playing a role in that, and so just thank you. Uh, honestly, you know, uh, I don't know what we would be doing if, if, uh, without it, so thank you, and uh, God has used you, and I appreciate it, so we all appreciate it. So let's, let's pray. Dear God, we come this morning and just ask, this is an emotionally difficult topic. This is a topic that comes with, for many, just a lot of weight. And this is a heavy topic for all of us. And we need your help in order to talk about it in a way that, that will honor you and will bring direction and clarity and, and change and transform us more into your image. God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of years ago, I think it was maybe five years ago or so, my wife and I, we watched a movie. Uh, many of you have probably seen it. It's called Selma. And uh, it's a movie about the civil rights movement. It's got Martin Luther King in it. And one of the things that at least stood out to me as I watched that and I think many of you probably asked the same question. You watch that and you see all the injustices and all that's taking place. And it's, it's crazy. And you just wonder, where was the church, right? Especially like, where was the white church during that season? They're, they're, they're not even present in the movie, right? Or if they are, they're, they're presented probably in, in a negative light. Where, where were they standing up and, 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 and doing something about such clear and obvious injustice. Of course, the passivity of religious people is not new. It's not something that only happens in America or just began recently. Jesus actually talks about the passivity of religious people in his day. Luke chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus tells a parable and he says this, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite. And when he came to the place, he saw him and passed by on the other side. I just want us to notice a few things about this text, right? The priest and the Levite did not commit the crime, right? They didn't do anything wrong to this man. They were completely innocent of hurting this man. If you had asked them, I bet if you would have interviewed them afterwards and asked them, are you for or against what happened to this man? What do you think they would have said? We are against it. We are vitally against what happened to this man. However, even though they were mentally opposed to what happened to this man, they were too busy to do anything to help fix the situation. While they may have been against killing an innocent man, they weren't willing to risk their money or their time 
or their safety in order to do anything to help save his life. Notice, they passed by on the other side of the street. Do you know why? Because they were very much aware that the closer they got and the more they saw, the harder it would be to justify their passivity. And so they purposely stayed away as far as they could, knowing if we see too much, it'll be harder to justify just walking by. You know the reality that they were trying to avoid dealing with? The reality that they were trying to avoid dealing with is this, if no one stopped to help that man, which means if everyone did what they did and walked by on the other side of the street, that man would die. That's the reality that they didn't want to think about. That's why they didn't get too close. You see, what that man needed was an advocate. He needed someone to stop and intervene. His very life depended on someone stopping and intervening to help him. Without mercy, this man would die. Jesus goes on to say, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and he saw the man and he had compassion. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of this man and whatever you spend, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus then asked the crowd, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? The man responded, the one who showed him mercy. And this is where it comes to us today because Jesus responded by saying, you, plural, to us, go and do likewise. The story of the good Samaritan is a warning against passivity. And it is a call for God's people to go and show mercy to those in need. That's what Jesus means when he says, go and do likewise. This passage is a call to make sacrifices and inconvenience yourself to be a neighbor to those around you who desperately need it. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to take three groups of people and we're going to talk about how it is that they are in desperate need of mercy and maybe some ways of what it would look like for us to have compassion on them. Now, these groups of people are all around you, even though you may not have noticed them before. And they will die if someone doesn't intervene on their behalf. Now, I recognize the topic this morning is it's an emotionally charged topic, and there will be parts of this message that are difficult to listen to, just like that man on the road was no doubt difficult to look at. What I'm going to ask you to do is to just stick with me, to, to stay through the whole thing. And my goal is that we would leave here more aware of the great mercy that we have been shown. But before we can really understand that mercy, we have to understand the need and the brokenness. The first group of people that I want to talk about today that are in desperate need of an advocate find themselves living in a very dangerous place. 
Do you want to know where the most dangerous place for an American to live is? It's not on the front lines of Afghanistan. It's not on the front lines in in Iraq or, or in the Middle East or in Syria. It's not in the projects of New York City. It's not being a gang member in Chicago. It's not being in a maximum prison, a maximum security prison in, in Texas. In fact, it's crazy, but the most dangerous place for an American to live actually ought to be the safest because the most dangerous place for an American to live in this great country of ours is in the womb of their own mother. 20% of the babies who begin life in the womb of their mother will be killed at the request of their own mom before they ever get a chance to be born. That means right now, 20% of the babies living in the wombs of their mother have only a few months to live. 3,000 of them a day. One every 30 seconds. Before I'm done with this sermon, that's 80 babies. It's their life. Michael Spielman compares the plight of these children to the story of the Good Samaritan. He writes, just like the man left for dead in the street, children threatened by abortion are utterly helpless. If someone doesn't intervene, they will die. They have no capacity to communicate or ask for help. They're socially marginalized, strangers in a culture programmed not to care about them. And just like the people passing on the road to Jericho, we may be innocent of the crime, but Jesus still expects us to intervene. The babies, these babies, these children need someone to show mercy on them. They need an advocate. They need someone to stand up for them. John Perkins says this, in situations of inequality, or oppression, the oppressed group must take a stand somewhere and sometime. That is precisely what these babies can't do and will never be able to do. They can't take a stand. They're the one oppressed group that will never be able to take a stand. They can't. They, they, They can't take a stand. They can't defend themselves. They can't protest. They can't march. They can't call a senator. They have no voice. And if they are killed, they never will. 3,000 babies a day ripped from the safety of their mother's womb, thrown away like trash or sold for a profit. That's what happens when you get an abortion. You want to know what happens when you don't get an abortion? Every day I got a little two-month-old that I get to hold. And I look at him and I think that's what happens when you don't get an abortion. After church, you probably go outside and you'll hear little kids running around. You'll hear some laughter. You'll see them playing. That's what happens when you don't get an abortion. Look in the mirror when you get home. That's what happens when you don't get abortion. That's what happens to babies that have an advocate. 
That's what happens to babies that have someone willing to sacrifice, someone willing to to do whatever it takes to give them life. You and me, we are here today, in this building today, because somebody wanted us born. Somebody was willing to make sacrifices so that we could be here today. Somebody carried us for nine months. Someone went into anguish to bring us into the world, and that was just the beginning. And they worked to provide for us and to take care of us. We're here today because we had an advocate. Somebody wanted us born. Thousands of babies each day don't have that. They need it. The verse that was just read a few minutes ago, right? Proverbs 24, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, walking by on the other side of the road, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And he will not, and will he not repay person according to his work? Tell Sarah Baptist, 3,000 babies a day stumbling to the slaughter, and we cannot afford to walk by on the other side of the street. God is calling you and I to be neighbors to these unborn children and to make whatever sacrifices are necessary to show mercy to them. How do we do that? What does it look like to show mercy to an unborn child? I think you heard two amazing ways just a moment ago. I'm going to give you a general way that you can be more specific. And one of the most, one of the best ways to show mercy to an unborn child is to love their mother. In preparing this sermon, I spent hours reading the testimonies of women who have chosen to get an abortion. And over and over again, do you know what they talk about? Talk about being all alone. They talk about being scared and confused. If you were to ask them, many of the women getting abortions feel like they have no choice. I'm going to read you one story. And you could times this. I I could read stories like this for the rest of the hour. But I'm just going to give you one. One young girl writes, I got pregnant in February, a little before Valentine's Day. I didn't tell anyone except for my boyfriend. Every day I went to sleep, I held my stomach, and I promised my baby, I will never give up. I'll do it on my own. Then my boyfriend got scared, and he said, no, you can't keep it. We're not ready. I'm only 16. You're only 17. It's going to ruin our lives. But still, I kept saying, no, I am keeping my baby. I was three months, and my aunt, who I lived with, found out. She made me get a test, and of course, it came back positive. She gave me an option, get an abortion or leave. At this point, my boyfriend also gave me an option, get an abortion or lose me forever. At this time, my boyfriend was my whole world. He was everything to me. I couldn't go a day without him. I was selfish. And I also knew I wasn't ready. I just didn't want to give up on my baby. But I ended up having an abortion at the end of May. I saw an ultrasound before and, oh, how I feel in love. I cried, and the nurse said, if you don't stop crying, they're not going to do the abortion. But I didn't stop crying. I sat there crying, and I held my stomach, and I thought, I will never be forgiven. 
Next thing, they're calling my name, and I get up, and I go into the room, and I undress, and I put the gown on with so much shame. I lay down. They put the needle in, and I go black. I wake up, tears running down my face, and I feel so much pain in my heart. I hold my stomach, and I knew there's nothing in there anymore, and I cried, and I prayed. Oh, how I prayed. I put my hands together, and I cried, and I said, Lord, forgive me. Please, please, I'm so sorry. These are the women having abortions. Does she sound like she wants to have an abortion? One person stood up for her. One person gave her away. If just one person would have been there for her, that baby would be alive. She needed an advocate. She needed another option. I want to read you what a counselor at an abortion clinic Writes. This is a, a non-Christian counselor at an abortion clinic whose job is to help women having abortions. Not to help them not have abortions, just to help women to have abortions. For the women who are determined to proceed with an abortion but want to talk about it, that's what she's there for. She says, here are the questions they ask me. First and foremost, will I ever be free of guilt? Followed by, will I go to hell? Followed by, will God take one of my other children from me? Followed by, what gives me the right to decide which of my children live and which of my children die? Do these sound like the questions of people who want to have an abortion? Do they sound like the questions of people who really don't care at all about their babies? These are the girls getting abortions. And they're doing it because they're scared. And they're doing it because they're alone. And they're doing it because they don't know what else to do. Many women who have abortions will tell you it is the hardest thing they've ever did. So why on earth would they do it if it was so hard? Well, they do it because the alternative seems impossible to them. And the reason it seems impossible is because they're so alone. As Christians, we must do everything we can to love these women, to assure them they're not alone. And while having a baby is hard, it is possible. And it's the kind of hard that ends with lots of joy, while abortion is the kind of hard that ends with lots of regret. Six years ago, a young woman who came to our church got pregnant. She was living on the streets. She would come to my Bible study every Friday, and she would come to our church on Saturdays. She got pregnant. She knew she couldn't take care of the baby, so she did what many women in her situation do. She went to the Planned Parenthood in El Cajon to get an abortion. Nobody was on the sidewalk that day, so she walked right into the building by herself. She needed an advocate, but there didn't seem to be any. And then there was one. Because as she was sitting in the waiting room, waiting for her name to be called, God somehow reached down and she just realized she couldn't do it. When they called her name, she got up and instead of walking towards the nurse, she ran to the door. And then she said she ran and she ran to the sidewalk and then she ran down the street and it's a three-story building. She said, I ran until I couldn't see the building anymore. Isaiah 59, 15 through 16 says, the Lord saw it and it displeased him and there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered why there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation and his righteousness upheld him. That's what happened that day. 
God reached down with his own hand because no advocate could be found. And I don't know how he did it. But this girl ran. A few weeks later on a hot August night, it was Friday, she was at my house. She asked if she could talk to me after the, the Bible study. So we went into my office and we were sweating and turned a fan on and her and her boyfriend asked if me and my wife would adopt her little baby. We named the baby Malachi because it means my messenger. And, uh, and this young woman will tell you that this baby that, that she thought might ruin her life turned out to be God's messenger to rescue her. And it was hard. If you ask her, she would tell you being pregnant was really hard. Having a baby and then holding him all night long in the hospital and then handing him over to another family was hard. But it was the kind of hard that was worth it, and it was the kind of hard that has brought so much joy. If I had to think of all the laughter in the last six years that, I've, that have taken place because of this little boy, I can't even imagine. And she found she wasn't alone. There was a house in Escondido a maternity house called the Lamb of God that was specifically designed for mothers that want to place their children for adoption instead of aborting them. And she went and she lived there, been on the streets since she was eight years old. She finally was able to get off the streets. There was a church in Escondido that welcomed her, and there was a family that, that she says, she told our adoption lawyer, when I asked him and Abby to adopt my little baby, I didn't know that it would feel like they adopted me as well. She'd been on the streets since she was eight years old. Now she has a job. She has three jobs. She has a driver's license. She went up to UC Davis, and she graduated last year from UC Davis. She's a social worker. She works with autistic children. She comes and spends Christmas with us sometimes. And Abby and I have a son that God literally rescued from death and gave to us as a gift. That's the kind of thing our God is able to do, and he's calling you and I to be a part of what he's doing. He's calling us to show mercy to the unborn, to show mercy to their mothers by loving them and by being advocates for them and by urging them to choose life, choose life for themselves, to choose life for their children and choose Jesus and the gospel for themselves. One final group I want to address that needs mercy. That's men and women who have had abortions in their past. Dr. Vincent Rune writes, for men and women alike, the feeling of emptiness that comes after an abortion may last a lifetime because parents are parents forever, even of a dead child. As I read through countless testimonies of people who have chosen Abortion, guilt, and regret shown through nearly every one. Many of the testimonies revealed that after years and years, even after it happened, they still found themselves bent over with shame and guilt. One woman recently wrote, I went to our, I want our baby back. Here was 1999. I was 34 years old and married. I don't remember much of anything. All I do remember is letting an older, nameless woman take my baby from me. I never even told my husband. 
Another woman says, I can still hear the nightmares slurping echo from the suction aspirator machine in my dreams. I vividly recollect the day 23 years ago that I heard that dreadful appliance as deafening hum. One man writes, I think of my child that will never be on earth. and I hate the self-deception and the falsehood I bought into. The pseudo-enlightened argument I groped for is actually proven to be the darkest moment of my life, filling me with unending ache and remorse. Hardly a day goes by that I don't shudder and almost weep again for the murder I helped bring about over 11 years ago. The shame and guilt of abortion is heavy, and it's something that many people in our lives carry silently. One-third of all the women in this country will have an abortion in their lifetime. That means you know women that have had abortions, even if they've never told you. You know men that have been a part of having their child aborted, even if you've never talked about it. John Ensor says, for 20 years now, the guilt and regret of abortion is the most common human experience of our generation. Can you fathom that idea that one of the most common human experiences of our generation may be the guilt and regret of abortion? We live in a world full of men and women staggering under the weight of the guilt and the shame from a past abortion. All around you, every day, you encounter them, desperate for mercy, desperate for an advocate, desperate to hear that there is someone out there who knows everything about them that could still love them, some way for relief, for this burden to be untied and removed, some way that they could stand straight once more, some hope or something they did a long time ago. For those of you who struggle with guilt and regret, even here today from a past abortion, I just want to share a story with you from the Gospel of Luke. It's Luke 13. Jesus is teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath, and he encounters a woman who had this disabling spirit that had kept her from standing upright for 18 years. Some of you may know what that feels like. The weight of your shame and your guilt may sometimes feel disabling. You may feel like it's hard for you to stand upright, like you'll never get back to the way you were before, like things will never be the same. I want you to watch and see what happens when Jesus sees this woman. The Bible says he calls her over to himself, and he says to her, woman, you are free from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Look at this woman. She was too ashamed to even ask Jesus for help. She doesn't come to him. She doesn't ask him for help. She's too embarrassed by what she, this, this debilitating, shaming, can't even stand upright spirit, disabling spirit that has bound her and kept her chained for these 18 years. She can't even ask for help, but he sees her. He calls her to himself, and then he lays his hand on her, and he sets her free. Now, the ruler of the synagogue did not think that this woman should have been healed on the Sabbath. You see, because he thought there was only certain days that people should be healed. He says there's six days which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Some of you have probably been deceived by a similar lie. Some of you believe that 
There are certain sins, many sins, that can be forgiven, but that the murder of an innocent baby isn't one of them. You hear Satan saying, for your lies and your gossip, you can be forgiven, but for your abortion, don't think that you can come and ask God to forgive you for that. I want you to listen to how Jesus responds to these kinds of lies. He says, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, from whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? When I read this verse, I couldn't help but think of all of the people who to this day walk around bent over under the weight of their past sins, whatever those sins might be for you, all those people that Satan is bound with shame and with guilt for all these years. And this morning, if that's you, Jesus comes to rebuke those lies that you've been believing and to say, ought not this woman, ought not this man, a child of God himself, whom Satan is bound with shame and guilt all these years, Ought they not be loosed from them today on this Sabbath day? Now, Sarah Baptist, your Savior shed his precious blood on the cross so that he could set you free. He died so that you and I could stand up straight again, even after all that we've done. This is the message of forgiveness that we have to trumpet to those who feel overwhelmed with shame and guilt because of their past. And of course, this is the message that you and I desperately need to hear ourselves. Because if we go back to that Good Samaritan story, it's not hard to realize who we are in it. We're the ones in desperate need of mercy. The Bible tells us we were the ones laying on the side of the road, and if someone didn't intervene, we were the ones that would have never survived. Born dead in our sins and our trespasses, in desperate need of mercy. But there was one who looked down from heaven and he crossed that great divide between heaven and earth and he took on flesh and he came down. And though we were his enemies, like the Samaritan and the Jews, nevertheless, he took note of our sin and our suffering and he had compassion and he saw there could be one only one remedy for our plight. Oil and wine would not heal our wounds. Two days' wages would never provide the home that we needed. Looking closely, he knew his blood was the only thing strong enough to wash our wounds, his life the only thing precious enough to purchase our eternal home. And so he went to the cross, and there he died that we might live. He was bent under the weight of that cross so that you and I might stand up straight. There he had compassion on us for all the times we failed to have compassion on others. Isaiah 53 describes this good Samaritan when it says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his stripes we are healed. 
Tell Sarah Baptist, your Savior's back was bent over under the weight of the cross so that you could stand up straight. He was beaten so that by his stripes you might be healed. So this morning, won't you let your Savior carry your sorrows for you? Even if you're too embarrassed to come to him, he, he looks at you this morning and I pray that you'll hear him say your name and say, be healed. Stand up straight. Be freed. He didn't die on the cross so that you could walk around enslaved to your shame and guilt all your life. That's not why he died. It's not why he shed his blood, so that you could try to pay for your own sins. Guys, you can't fix what you've done. Whether it's abortion or something else, you can't fix it. You have broken things you'll never be able to fix. If you try to carry your past, you will be bent down, dragging it your whole life until it crushes you for all eternity, but you don't have to. Your Savior wants to bear your griefs, to carry your sorrows, to pay for your sins, to heal your wounds. He wants to take away your shame. He wants to remove your sins as far from your back as the east is from the west. So let him. My prayer is that some of you may become over, bent down, might leave here standing up straight. Overwhelmed with a God who would forgive you. A God who knows everything about you and he still loves you. Shed his blood so that he could be with you. Do you believe that? Because you will never be able to show mercy to others as long as you're bent over in guilt and shame because you don't have the energy or the strength to help others when you can't even carry your own junk. But if you'll let your Savior free you, if you'll let him forgive you, if you'll let him have mercy on you, then you can stand up straight and so overwhelmed with his grace and his mercy, you will find it overflows from you onto others. And you will have something to offer. Something to offer those babies who just need an advocate, a voice, somebody to stand with them, to want them to be alive. Those mothers who need a friend, an advocate, a companion, someone to help them. And those moms and dads who have had abortions in their past that don't feel like there's anything they'll ever be able to do to make up for it. They need your mercy. And you need to receive the mercy of Christ so that you'll have something to give them. Amen? All right, let's pray. Dear God, as we 
gather here, we just, all of us, I just pray with one voice, can just say, please, please, reach down and rescue with your right arm some babies. Save them. Open mother's eyes, change father's hearts. Have mercy. Lord, would you be the advocate that some of these babies that have no advocates need? Would you, with your own right arm, work salvation? Would you save some? Would you bring mothers help so that they might have the courage to choose life, whether that's through adoption or raising the child on their own? Would you just give them the strength and the courage to do the hard, knowing that it's the kind of hard that comes with joy? Would you please protect and guard the mothers and the fathers that are contemplating abortion right now, even in their homes, maybe just waking up this morning? Would you just have mercy? Would you help them to recognize the weight and the regret and the guilt that that leads to and help them see that it's, it's the kind of horror that isn't worth it? Have mercy. Lord, would you use your people, use Del Cerro, use the guys that stood up here on stage and the ministries that they work with, use the churches in San Diego. Lord, would we be united and with one voice proclaiming the beauty and the worth of every human life created in your image? Lord, have mercy, please. And for those here today who are burdened with guilt and shame, God, would you reenact in their lives what you did 2,000 years ago in that synagogue? Would you call them over? Would you tell them to stand up straight as you take their sin and their guilt upon yourself and forgive them and rescue them and free them? Would you just condemn the lies that they hear, that there are some sins that can be forgiven, but not theirs? God, no. Every sin can be forgiven, just like you healed every single day of the week. You are bigger and greater than the worst thing anyone could ever do. So God, let us receive your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.